Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 8. We're going to start with the 8th Psalm. So what I want to do this morning is show you a thread that runs through Scripture, really with just three Scriptures. Um, Psalm 8 is the pivot of these three Scriptures. Uh, but the three scriptures are Genesis chapter 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2. So Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2. And we're going to start in the middle, and then we're going to go backwards, and then we're going to go forward. Uh, but what we're about to do, I think, is a really important thing for people who are skeptics of the Bible. I think it's important for us as Christians to learn how to show people things like this in the scripture where there are passages that are separated by thousands of years, um, and yet there is a coherency to an argument or to a thought, where something in the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, in the end of the Bible, uh, written by different folks, make perfect sense. And that's hard to explain if you don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Um, some of you are aware of things like that, uh, like with Melchizedek. We're not going to talk about him today, but Melchizedek is a Genesis character, and then he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then he's brought up again in the book of Hebrews, and those are the only places he's mentioned. This particular topic, though, is something that does run through Scripture in other places, um, but we're going to sort of find its main argument here in Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2. We're talking about the idea of going home, and I think a lot of times when we think of that, we think of location, but there's another way that scripture describes going home, and it's not so much about location as it is who we are as people, that God made us and made us in such a way to have fellowship with him. Uh, this is humanity at large, like he made mankind, and we lived with him in a garden. And there was fellowship with us, with them and us. And then paradise was lost. Like we ended up being put out of the garden. And really what you have in scripture is kind of the story about getting back to the garden and getting back to the presence of God. Uh, this is not the theme for today, but you maybe have seen this before that the Bible starts with a picture of this walled garden of paradise. That's what the word paradise means. And then the Bible ends in Revelation with a description of, of heaven, which is very much like the garden. And the tree of life is there, just like the tree of life was at the beginning. Uh, maybe you've heard people describe the story of the Bible with three trees. You start in Genesis with the tree of life, and we lose that. And then Jesus dies on a tree, and then we gain the tree of life at the end. Uh, so there are some cool thoughts like that in Scripture. But the one that I want to show you today has to do with God making us in his image and giving us glory and majesty alongside of him. And then we walked away from all of that. And what Jesus is trying to do is to bring us back to that place, which isn't even a location. It's something about who we are again. Um, and I hope by the time we're done that you'll see what we're trying to look at. Let's go ahead and look at Psalm 8, though, and read it and make some observations from it. O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've established strength, because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, can you picture David being in exile? And if you know anything about the story of David, there were times where he was not at home. He was running from his uh, his hometown or his palace or whatever, and he'd find himself in the wilderness. And David had been a shepherd earlier in his life, so he was very familiar with kind of living out in the wilderness and living in the country. But I think David was a lot like many of you. Uh, I don't know if any of you are that kind of person where you like to go out in nature and just hike or walk and see the things that God has made. And as you do that, you you start thinking about how great God is. Um, I want you to notice that. So verse 1 and verse 9 are the bookends of this psalm. And in both places he said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I like that phrase. Why is it significant that David says this? How majestic is your name in all the earth? You know, the name of Jehovah, the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, wasn't well known outside of Jerusalem and Judea. In fact, if you were to go around planet earth in the days of David and say, hey, have you heard of Yahweh? Many pagan nations would say, we don't know who that is. Who is that God? Um, And yet David proclaims that his name is known in all the earth, not just in one location. Why is that? Well, because the idea of knowing God is something that you can take from the creation. Wherever there were stars to be seen or animals to be watched, people could see the majesty of God. That's kind of what Paul argues in Romans chapter 1, is that everybody in the world is without excuse, because the glory or the majesty of God is known in all of the earth. So that's really the theme of this psalm, is talking about how great God is. But the middle section, from verses 2 through 8, David starts thinking about us, mankind. And as he's thinking about how great God is, he begins to wonder and think about like what God has done for mankind. Let's talk about that a little bit. Look there at verse 2. So in verse 2 when he says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. What do you think David means by that? That God took babes and infants and established strength in them. And it had something to do with the enemies of God. Have you ever thought very much about that? I'll tell you, I think probably what he's got on his mind
find here are, it is the place that Israel, the children of Israel had, to proclaim the name of the God that people didn't know with their ears, but they could see with their eyes. Like, they could see the creation of God, but they couldn't connect the creation to Yahweh until these infants, these babies, this pipsqueak nation of Israel would proclaim his excellencies and talk about them. And because of that, God established strength for himself in giving this privilege of praise to his people. Now, you might recognize that verse from the New Testament. Do you have a cross-reference for verse 2 that goes to either Luke or Matthew? Does anybody see that? Matthew chapter 21 or Luke chapter 19. There was this time where Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey colt. you remember that? And as he was coming in, the people began to praise him. People were laying down palm branches. Everyone was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And do you remember that the, the Pharisees or the enemies of Jesus came up and said, Hey, make your disciples stop saying that. What they're saying is blasphemous. Shut them up. Remember that? Remember how Jesus responded to them? He said, if they don't speak up, the stones will cry out. Like, look, if, if people don't talk about who I am, the creation of God will talk about who I am. Now, when he got into the temple complex in Matthew 21, the Bible tells us that little children came up and started surrounding him and were praising him in the temple. And again, the Pharisees rebuked this, and Jesus quotes this to them. He says, haven't you ever read in Psalm 8, verse 2, that from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, now in the New Testament account it speaks like this, you have uh, you have established praise for yourself. Uh, not just established strength, but you have prepared praise from the mouth of these little ones. Now what does that have to do with us? Do you ever feel insignificant in this world? Like where you go to school, where you work, in your neighborhood. Uh, maybe some of you are the kind of young people where you get a lot of attention when you go to school. But chances are, because of what you believe and how you live and how you dress and how you talk, you aren't the ones that are the most flashy. Like you aren't the ones that everybody's looking at. There are other people getting you. And I think in a world like that, sometimes we can begin to think, well, what's our place? What's our significance? Why are we important? And this verse answers that. God took children, infants, babies, nobodies, and made himself strong through the praise that we offer. And that's a really cool thought that David has there. But keep reading now. Go to Psalm 8, look at verse 3. David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So as David's looking at the stars, you ever do that? I'm not sure what it's like down here in Indiana, but up in Minnesota there's places where it gets pretty dark if you get away from the city. And you can look up and you can see just so many stars. And if you've ever done that, I want you to remember this verse. David says, 
he considered that the work of God's fingers. Um, your version might say hands, but mine says fingers. So I picture God like poking holes in like a black background. And like David's like, yeah, God, you just sort of with your fingers made all those stars. And if you've ever looked at that before and thought about how vast the universe is, you start feeling very, very small. Who are we? And then David starts thinking like this. But it's not like we're unknown to a God that's named every star. He knows us. So he asked these two questions. What is man that you, what's the first one? Take thought of him. That's not as good as the next phrase. Or the son of man that you, what? Care for him. You know it's different to say that you think about somebody than to say that you care about somebody. But David is saying that God does both. You think about us, God, and you care about the sons of Adam. That's what that is in the Hebrew there. Bar Adam. We are the sons of Adam. We are the sons of men. And God, you both think about us and care about us. Now I keep reading them. Verse 5 says this. Yet you've made him a little lower than Elohim. Some versions say God. Some versions might say angels. But it's the word Elohim that is the same as Genesis 1 in your Bible. That in the beginning, Elohim created the world. You made him a little lower than God, and you crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So here's what David is marveling at. God, you care about us, and you crowned us with glory and majesty. I want you to pay attention to that phrase. I want you to imagine taking um, somebody who thought they were nothing, an infant, a child, who feels completely unseen, and somebody brings them in front of the whole crowd of creation, and puts a crown on their head, and says, you are, what are the words here? You are crowned with glory and, what's the other word in your Bible? Honor, or some versions say majesty. Remember, that's verse 1, and that's verse 9. God's majestic. But now what David is saying is, you made us majestic too. You've crowned us with glory and honor, the honor that you have, that you've displayed. You gave that to us. And you made us to be the rulers of the world. And David is just thinking about that. Again, I want you to, just for a moment, think about it. Is David right when he says that all beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, all of the creation is subject to us as men? What do you think? Can you think of an animal that we've not tamed? Or if we haven't tamed the animal, can you think of an animal that we human beings can't kill? Do you know why we have to make movies about like Godzilla and King Kong? Because we can't think of any other animals that like can subdue us. Because we can subdue any of them. We've got enough firepower as mankind to catch, trap, kill, dominate anything in the creation. And that's just something to kind of marvel at. But doesn't all of this remind you of Genesis 1? 
what David is thinking about here is really what we read in Genesis 1. So let's go back there for a moment. <clears throat> let's be reminded what God said in the creation of man. Genesis 1, verse 26. <clears throat> then Elohim said, and that's the same word over there in Psalm 8, uh, verse 5, uh, about we were made a little lower than Elohim. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, a couple of things here. First, did you notice that twice in this little reading, God makes the point that we're supposed to rule over the creation? That's the point. Rule over the fish, rule over the birds, rule over everything that I've made. I put you at the pinnacle of creation. Or as David says it in Psalm 8, he crowned us as kings and gave us glory and honor over everything that was made. Now, how did he do that? Now, the language here is that he made us in his image, or God said, let us make man in our image. In the, in the image of God, he created us. What does that mean? What do you think? That we are made in the image of God. I've thought about this for a long time, and I, I have to tell you, I don't understand all of it. I don't know everything about what it means that we are made in the image of God. I, I don't believe biblically that it has very much to do with our physical appearance. Because he says, male and female, he created them. I don't think God looks like a, a human man, or God looks like a human woman. In fact, Jesus will tell us that God is spirit. He's not flesh and blood. So I, I don't believe it's our flesh and blood that makes us in the image of God. In fact, I think that this story bears that out. You read into chapter 2, our bodies were made from the dust that all of the other creation came from. And later on in scripture, it will say uh, that we came from dust, and to dust we shall return. So like, the, the human part of us, or excuse me, the, the, the physical part of our humanity is a dust part that God made. But Genesis chapter 2 tells us that what he did different with this dust creation is he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He gave us the spirit of God that makes us different than everything else. And I believe that's really what the idea is, that we are made in the image of God. We are eternal beings living in a temporary place among temporary things. Yet we are crowned with glory and honor because of the eternal nature of the spirit that God has given us. I will say, when I look at all the trouble that human beings are going through these days, I think it's that one truth, just that one truth, 
that would save most people from every emotional, psychological, um, and spiritual problem. Some of you that are growing up going to school right now, you guys go to science class, and your science teacher says something like this to you. You're nothing but, as Luke said, a dust particle come from living on another dust particle in a vast universe. You are just uh, something that evolved from slum, essentially. Um, and they teach you this idea of evolution, that you're no different than any of the animals, you're just sort of one of the highly evolved animals. Well, then here's what happens in your generation. These kids who have this identity don't know who they are. They wonder about their purpose and their place, and they struggle with any sense of identity. So they go from their science class to their counselor, and they say, I don't have any self-esteem. I wonder why. Because you don't know who you are. Listen, if you ever meet somebody who feels like they aren't loved, or they aren't valuable, or they don't matter in this life. Do you know the number one biblical truth to convince them of? You are made in the image of God. In the image of God who created you. You are important and valuable on a level that you cannot fathom. That's what this story is about. Now, let's kind of get back to thinking about this. Genesis 1 says that man was supposed to subdue the earth, rule over it. Did we do a pretty good job of that? You know, in chapter 2, Adam begins to name all the animals. Uh, he begins to learn from that, that it's not good for man to be alone, and, and that he needs somebody like him. So God makes woman from man. Uh, she is also made in the image of God. But I want you to turn over to Genesis 4 for a minute. Go to Genesis 4. I believe this story of Cain and Abel is here for a couple of different reasons, um, all of them profound, but I want to connect the story of Cain and Abel to what we just read in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. Let's go ahead and read a little bit here. Genesis 4, 1 says, The man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Now I want you to listen to this last phrase. But you must master it. Did you hear that? Alright, so, Cain and Abel. Were they both doing a pretty good job of ruling over the creation of God? Look at what we just read. What was 
Kane again. He was a, uh, it says there, Abel was a keeper of the flocks, Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Cain was farming, and he was taking care of all of the, the things that grew produce. He was raining. And Abel was taking care of animals. In fact, they could dominate. Like, they could take that fruit, bring it to God as an offering, take the animals, bring it to God for an offering. They were doing what Genesis 1 said, right? Ruling over the creation. Except they weren't. You see, when Cain loses control of himself, when Cain um, can't figure out how not to be angry, when he can't figure out how to have his countenance be lifted up, when sin began to dominate him, what he was actually doing is he was taking off his crown of glory and majesty. He was no longer living in the image of God. And it didn't matter what else he could control in his life. If he couldn't control himself, he didn't know who he was. Now, think about this just for a minute. Have you ever noticed that when kids, this goes back a while, kids who struggle to have a sense of identity and purpose and self-esteem begin to feel like everyone around them is maybe doing better than them? Some kids begin to look at their options. And I've known kids, I had friends that decided to just end their own life because they couldn't stand to live around people that had a life that was different than theirs. I don't know if you've ever known anybody that did that. But there are other kids that decide they're going to end other people's lives, not their own. So all the stories that have come out over the years of some kid takes his dad's rifle to school and begins to like shoot other children. You guys heard those terrible stories? What's going on there? What's happening there? What you have there is someone who knows they're powerful. They know that something about them has strength. And they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And so sometimes our best idea is either to control the only thing we think we can control, which is whether or not we have life in this body. Or we try to control everything around us by hurting everybody else. That's all wrong, you know? You know what God really wants? He wants us to subdue the creation. And that's us. The ones who were created in the image of God. Remember how James says this um, in, uh, I'm not going to go there, but just to reference it. James chapter 3, verse 7 when he says, all manner of creatures, all manner of animals have been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame, remember what he said? The tongue. Like, we can't control the way we talk, we can't control the way we think, we can't control the way we feel, and as soon as we begin to live life like that, we take the crown of glory and majesty off of our heads, and as Romans chapter 3 says, we fall short of the glory of God. Alright, so here's the thread in Scripture. God made us in His image to dominate the creation, and we've done pretty good as mankind except for controlling ourselves. 
And when we get to Psalm 8, David is celebrating that fact and talking about how marvelous it is. But David doesn't mention anything in Psalm 8 about our failure. David is just celebrating the fact that we've been made in God's image. So let's go to the last passage. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. And this will tie those two thoughts together. Hebrews chapter 2. Start reading in verse 5 of Hebrews 2. For he did not subject to angels the inhabited world concerning which we are speaking, but what is testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. He put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now, let's follow the argument for just a minute of the Hebrew writer. So back in verse 5, when he says, God did not subject to angels the inhabited world or the world to come, but God didn't make this whole creation for the angels, he made this for us. And he didn't subject this creation to angels, he subjected it to us. And so the Hebrew writer says, Psalm 8, he doesn't say Psalm 8, I always like that he just says, somebody testified somewhere, that's like a preacher who doesn't know his references like me. Uh, it's like somebody said somewhere, but he's quoting Psalm 8, where David was celebrating this fact. Now, here's a mistake that sometimes people make when they read this section. Whenever they read him, or man, or son of man in this couple verses, they think Jesus. Like, here's what I mean. Look again at verse 6. What is man that you remember him, or Jesus that you were concerned about him? You've made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned Jesus with glory and honor. You've appointed Jesus over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. In subjecting all things to Jesus, you left nothing that is not subject to Jesus. That's not how you should read that. In fact, I've gotten myself in trouble when I've preached this text before because I didn't clarify this. But even your Bibles that capitalize pronouns, if you don't have the ESE, if you have a Bible that capitalizes he or him when talking about God, you'll notice that there in verse 8, the him... The he is not capitalized. It's lowercase. You know why? Because the argument here is something like this. God gave to us, mankind, all of us, dominion. He subjected everything to us. And there is nothing in this creation that is not subject to us. But here is the one thing that's added that David didn't say. Look at the end again of verse 8. The end of verse 8 says, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Don't we? Folks, we're like flying into outer space. We're sending vessels to the deepest parts of the ocean. We've caged every animal. We've, we've, we've found all the marine creatures, some of the ones that are man-killers, and we've put them in cages, and we can go 
watch them perform for us. What do you mean, Hebrew writer, that we don't yet see all things subjected to us? We still can't tame our tongue. We still can't tame our hearts. We still don't have the life that God wanted us to have. In fact, the, the first thing God gave mankind in the garden was access to eternal life, and we couldn't even hang on to that. He pushed us away from that. So we don't see everything subject. We don't reign over life. We've got a problem. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the next couple of verses. Let's read, starting in verse 9. But we do see him, now that's capitalized, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now notice, here's the argument. God made man to reign and to be the people that we were supposed to be over the creation, but we didn't do it. But now what Jesus did is for a little while, he became one of us. He entered into our world, walked in our shoes, put on flesh like the rest of us. And now what's said about him? Pay attention to the language of verse 8. He was crowned with what? What does your Bible say? Crowned with glory and honor. Remember, that's what Psalm 8 said. David said, that's what God crowned us with. But folks, we took off our crown. The moment that we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, we took off the dominion that we had, and we set it aside, and we began to act like all the other creation. You know what we needed? We needed a human champion. We needed somebody to come and do for mankind what mankind could never do for themselves. So keep reading now. Look at verse 10. It was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, now listen close to this phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. Do you know what going home is? Going home is not about a location. You guys heard that there's debates going on among preachers about is heaven somewhere else, or is heaven going to be here in a recreated earth? Like, there's all kinds of discussions about the location of heaven. I don't really care about those conversations. You know why? That's not what it's about. Wherever God decides to put us, the point of us getting back home is that we will again share the glory of God that we were meant to have from the very beginning. And deep down in the heart of every human being, we know this. We know this to be true. He has put eternity in our hearts. We know there's something powerful about us. We know there's something significant. All of your friends and neighbors know that about themselves. The question that they have is, where do we find it? How do we get it back? How do we dominate inside of us who we really are? So, I love this language in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Folks, having a father and being brothers is what we talk about 
and being part of a household or a family. And what Jesus does is he comes into the world, grabs us by the hand, and brings us back to the glory that we were meant to have. He puts the crown back on our head. And every time we try to take it off again, because of sin, when we have fellowship with God, he puts the crown back on, and he says, you're my brothers. We're going to get there together. I don't have time to do all of this, but if you read the rest of the text, what he really did for us is he gave us the ability to dominate life, to conquer death. The one thing that no man has ever been able to figure out how to conquer, he did. But it's not just those grand ideas. Get down to verse 18. Verse 18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, Jesus' help for us isn't just about our future, it's about our present. Which is why, in places like Matthew 11, Jesus would preach like this. Come to me, all you who are, what? Weary and heavy laden and angry and confused and feel like the world's beating you up. And come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. I'll bring you back to glory. I'll help you understand the life that you could have if you will just understand who you are and where your home is. Of those thoughts are helpful to you. One more to say about some of that. But Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2 tell a story about us finally getting home. And I hope that that's helpful.